You're listening to Midi Storytime, part of the Spare Change Library. This week we're reading the latest chapter of The Bride of the Tomb by Mrs. Alex McVeigh Miller. Tune in each week for the next chapter. Chapter 8 The great agitation of poor imprisoned Lily Lawrence culminated in a severe fit of illness, and Dr. Pratt found need for all his skill before convalescence set in again. Mr. Colville prudently kept himself in the background now, so she was not troubled by the sight of the villain's face for several weeks. Haiti proved herself a careful and efficient nurse, and in three weeks' time, poor Lily rose from her sickbed, pale, weak, and weary, her girlish heart filled with heaviness and despair. She had again and again entreated old Haiti to go to her father, but in vain. The old woman stubbornly turned a deaf ear to all her entreaties. The old crone's husband, Lily, had not yet seen, though she frequently heard his gruff and brutal tones in the next room to hers, which appeared to be his sleeping apartment. She was sitting up one day in the great armchair puzzling her brain over some plan of escape. She looked very lovely still, though wasted by illness and sorrow. Haiti had provided her with a neat blue wrapper, and her fairness was almost dazzling by contrast with its becoming hue. Her rich golden hair was gathered in a loose coil at the back of her graceful little head, showing the whiteness of her neck and the rosy tinting of her small, shell-like ears. A fancy seized her to look out of the window, which was always covered with thick curtains. It was warm and sultry, and she longed for a breath of the sweet and balmy air outside her gloomy-looking room. Rising with feeble steps, she went to the window and pulled aside the curtain. Horrors! The window was barred with great, heavy iron bars. Some vague, indefinite plan of escape through that window had been forming in her mind. She almost screamed in her despair as she saw the futility of her plan. "'Hateful prison bars,' said she angrily, and clenching one in her small hand, she shook it with angry violence. To her surprise, the rotten woodwork yielded, and the bar fell from its place and remained in her hand. Very cautiously, she looked through the aperture just formed." She saw that she was in an old and weather-beaten house set in the midst of a large garden whose overgrown shrubs and bushes had grown wild and tangled and overrun the paths. There was not another house within half a mile of this one. She was far out in the suburbs, she comprehended at once. A noise below startled her from her reconnaissance. Hastily fitting the heavy bar back to its place, she dropped the curtains and tottered back to her seat, assuming an air of indifference and weariness. The door opened, and Harold Colville entered. "'Good evening, Miss Lawrence,' said he coolly. "'I trust you find yourself improving.' Lily vouchsafed him no answer, save a look of scorn and contempt. "'Come, come, fair lady,' said he, seating himself near her. "'Have you no kinder greeting for your devoted admirer?' "'Leave the room, if you please,' said she, while the indignant crimson suffused her cheeks. "'I have nothing to say to you, sir.' "'Nothing?' Surely it were wiser, Lily, to try to make terms with me than to bandy angry words. Remember, you are in my power. I love you, and I want your love in return. But, proud girl, beware how you change my love into hate. Mr. Colville, said she, it is cruel, it is unmanly thus to persecute a defenseless girl. I beseech you, restore me to my home and my father. Think of my poor father, my suffering sister. There are other women who will love you, women who have not given away their hearts as I have done. There is but one woman on earth to me, Lily, and I have sworn to make her my own. You cannot move me by all you say, as well try to topple a mountain from its base as to move me from my firm will. 
Better, far better were it for you, Lily Lawrence, to waive all this useless pleading, to make yourself as charming as you well know how to do, and become my wife. If you still persist in refusing, there may be worse things in store for you. She could not misunderstand the insulting meaning of his angry speech. The hot blood flushed into her face, then receded and left her pale as death. In bitter shame at his rudeness, she bowed her face in her hands. You understand me, said he with a low malignant laugh. So much the better. Now listen to reason, Lily. I love you, and you are in my power. You are dead to the world, dead to the father who reared you, the sister who loved you, the man you would have wedded. Consent to marry me, and within an hour after I call you my wife, you shall see your friends again and tell them the romantic story of my love and how it saved your life. You can tell them that such devotion won you to reward my fidelity with your hand. All this I offer you in good faith and honor and give you time for decision. But refuse and... Well, you know you are still in my power. She rose and stood confronting him in all the pride and dignity of outraged and insulted purity. She was rarely, peerlessly beautiful with that scarlet tide staining her cheeks, that lightning flash in the violet eyes. Villain! Coward! Dog! She cried in the white heat of passionate resentment. How dare you threaten me thus! Know that I defy you. I spurn you. I will never be your wife. I will die first. Do you hear me? I will die by my own hand rather than be so disgraced. Rave on, my beauty, he answered, laughing tauntingly. Flap your pretty wings against your prison bars, my little bird. You will only ruffle your feathers in vain. By Jove, you only make me more determined. I never saw you so beautiful, so utterly fascinating. I did not think you had so queenly a spirit, my fair one. You would make your fortune on the tragic stage. Oh, go, go, she gasped, lifting her hand with a wild gesture toward the door. Go, leave me, unless you wish to see me dying. He paused, irresolute an instant. Then her flashing eye and dauntless air cowed his craven spirit into submission. With a slight bow, he turned and went out of the door. Face downward on the bed, Lily wept and sobbed unrestrainedly. She was determined, if release did not come ere long, to die by her own hand. Better than dishonor, thought she with another burst of anguished tears. She looked about her for some instrument to secrete in case she should be driven to the last stronghold of honor. There was nothing to secure. Old Haiti had made sure of that. Well, she thought, if there is nothing else, I can strangle myself with my handkerchief. The hours wore on to twilight. Old Haiti brought her supper, grumbled because she did not eat it, and scowlingly withdrew. Lily was left alone with her sad thoughts for companions. She went to the window, pulled aside the curtain, and looked out. The twilight had faded, a few pale stars glimmered in the cloudy sky. A crescent moon gave forth a weak and watery light. A wild thought darted into her mind. Oh, if I could escape through these broken bars. Ah, why not? She stood still and listened. Familiar sounds from the adjoining room informed her that the leverets were retiring. She crouched down and waited perhaps half an hour. Then a dual chorus of snores announced that her lynx-eyed guardians slept. Breathlessly, she stole to the window and removed the iron bar. It left an aperture large enough to admit her slight form. She tried the other bars, but they seemed more firmly fixed than the first one she had tried. They resisted her strongest efforts. If I only had a strong rope, she thought to herself, I could secure it to these bars and slide down it to the ground. She leaned her head through the aperture and looked down to see how far she would have to descend. The distance appeared to be about 30 feet. If I only had a rope, she thought again, 
I could certainly gain my freedom. Freedom, that means home again. Papa, Ada, Lancelot. She sat down, her heart beating wildly at the thought. They believed her dead. She pictured their wild, incredulous joy at first when she burst in among them, their own living darling. What a story she would have to tell, and how swiftly the vengeance of Papa and Lancelot would descend on Mrs. Vance and Harold Colville. Her breath came quick and fast, her courage mounted high within her. I must escape, she murmured with passionate vehemence. Surely there must be some way out of this horrible prison. She thought of all the stories she had heard and read of the escape of prisoners. She remembered that she had read of one man who had torn his bedclothes into strips and made a rope of them by which he descended from the window. Why could she not do the same? Cautiously, so as not to awaken the sleepers in the next room, she removed the bed covers. There were not many, for the sultry summer weather precluded the possibility of their use, but there were two strong linen sheets. These would do, I think, she murmured to herself. I am so light it would not need a very strong rope to bear my weight. I will tear these sheets into four long strips each. That will make eight strips. I will tie them together in knots fasten the rope thus formed to a bar, and lower myself from the window. If the rope is not long enough, I must jump the remainder of the distance. Then, free from this dreadful prison, I must trust in Providence to find the way home. She set to work diligently. She was obliged to be very cautious for fear the sound of her work should penetrate the ears of her jailers. She had nothing with which to cut the cloth, and it was strong and difficult to tear. But by dint of hard labor with teeth and fingers, she at length accomplished it and set to work tying the slips of linen together. It took some time to make these knots secure. When that was done, she secured the end of her impromptu rope to the lowest bar of the window and looked out to see how far the end escaped the ground. Joy, joy! It was only about ten feet. I can easily jump that distance, she thought, with a thrill of triumph at her success. She looked about for some wrapping to put over her thin blue dress. A long dark cloak with hood attached hung conveniently against the wall. They must have put that around me when I was brought here, she said, so I will wear it to go away in. And taking it down, she rolled it into a compact bundle and threw it out of the window. Nothing now remained but to follow the bundle. She stood still a moment with streaming eyes raised to heaven, while with clasped hands she invoked the divine mercy and protection on her perilous undertaking. Then, shuddering, she climbed into the window, forced her body through the narrow opening, and catching to the rope, swung herself downward. Hark! There was a swish in the garden below, as if some heavy body had dashed through them. Her heart leaped into her throat, her clasp on the rope grew unconsciously looser, and she slipped much lower, so low that she heard distinctly on the ground beneath a deep, low, hurried breathing. In an agony of dread and fear, she clung tightly to the rope and waited for some demonstration from below. Some unexpected peril had intervened between her and freedom. Hush! Hark! Suddenly, as if all Hades had broken loose, there rose a fearful blood-curdling sound on the soft, warm air of the summer night. Louder and deeper still it grew, and Lily, hanging there by the clasp of her frail little hands, midway between the window and the ground, knew that it was the cruel, hungry, relentless baying of a deep-mouthed bloodhound. A scream of terror burst from her lips as she heard the dangerous creature at work beneath her wreaking its vengeance on the cloak she had thrown down, tearing it and rending it with fangs and paws. Thus, she thought, with a gasp of agony, the terrible beast would soon be rending her warm living body. Its vengeance sated on the cloak, the bloodhound began to make hungry leaps into the air toward Lily's body, at the same time uttering murderous yelps that froze the blood in the poor young creature's veins. 
She felt herself growing weak and faint, and knew that she could hold on but a few minutes longer ere she must faint and fall into the devouring jaws of the bloodthirsty animal. Oh, God, she thought, what a horrible death to be torn limb from limb by that hungry brute. Papa and Lancelot would never know all she had suffered. She had escaped death by steel, death by living entombment, to be rent in twain by this awful bloodhound. Suddenly, with a cry of rage, a night-capped head was thrust out of a window above. The leverets had been awakened by the noise, and now hastened to the rescue. Lily heard them coming and tried to hold on yet a little longer, but her strength was spent, her bruised hands relaxed their hold, and with a shriek of horror she was hurled downward into the hungry jaws that were waiting for her. She heard the wild, prolonged howl of joy given by the dog, felt its hot breath on her face, then unconsciousness supervened, and she knew no more. At that moment when her death would have been but the work of an instant, a powerful hand grasped the dog's collar and dragged him, howling and yelping away to his kennel, while old Haiti raised the unconscious girl carefully up and looked at her limp form in the moonlight. "'Is she dead?' muttered the old witch. "'Has the hound killed her?' "'Here, Peter,' as the old man came back from fastening the dog into his kennel, "'carry the girl upstairs. I believe the dog has killed her.' They carried her back and laid her down upon the bed whose coverings she had stripped and rent with such high hope an hour ago. White and cold, she lay there as if indeed life had been driven from its beautiful citadel forever. Old Haiti carefully examined her face and limbs. There was no sign of any wound from the animal's fangs. He has not bitten her. If she be dead, it is sheer fright that has killed her, said she. Peter, you ugly brute, stand aside. If she were to revive, the sight of you would be enough to frighten her to death. Peter removed his homely countenance to one side, while old Haiti pursued her task of bringing the unconscious girl out of her swoon. Cold water, camphor, burnt feathers, and ammonia were successively tried by the old crone before a faint breath began to flutter again over the pale lips. Her eyes opened, and she looked up in bewilderment. "'Where am I?' she moaned. "'What is the matter?' "'Oh, what is that?' Her wandering gaze had fastened on old Peter Leverett, and she regarded him with looks of horror. And no wonder, for old Peter was humpbacked and deformed, and had a countenance so wicked it resembled that of a brute more than a human being. A shock of bristly, unkempt red hair surmounted his visage, and his straggling beard was of the same fiery hue. He leered maliciously at her looks of terror. "'Pshaw, that is only my old man, miss,' said Haiti shortly. "'You need not put on so many airs at sight of him, "'for I do assure you that if he had not pulled old Nero off you "'just in the very nick of time, "'the hound would have torn you to pieces long before this.' "'I thank you,' said Lily timidly, "'forcing herself to look gently at the repulsive old creature. "'Oh, where did that dreadful dog come from?' We keeps it chained up all day in the garden, and at night we lets him loose to prevent you from escaping, miss, answered old Peter, doggedly. Strange that I never heard him before, mused Lily, reflectively. He never had occasion to make himself heard before, said Haiti, grimly. Lily shuddered and remained silent. Pray, miss, said old Peter, who had been examining the window curiously, how did you get the iron bar out of this here window? You don't look strong enough to have wrenched it out. The woodwork was rotten, she answered quietly. I pulled the bar out at the first effort. Peter, said old Haiti, go into the third room from this and see if the bars are strong in that window. Old Peter hobbled out on his errand, and Haiti said shortly, I did not think you would try to give us the slip, miss, or I would have warned you long ago about old Nero. There is no use trying to escape from here. You are as secure in this house as if you were in your grave. 
Grave perils await you the moment you step over this threshold. Old Nero is but a foretaste of what you may meet with, so I advise you to marry Mr. Colville and content yourself. I will never, never marry him, Haiti, said the young girl, sadly yet dauntlessly, and you need not try to frighten me from trying to escape, for I shall use every endeavor to that end. I can but die, and death is preferable to what I must endure in this house. She lay back and closed her eyes wearily. Peter Leverett entered and reported the bars as strong and tight in the third room. You may sit here by the patient, then, while I go and prepare that room for her reception, said his wife. You will not put her in that room, said Peter, with vague surprise and doubt. Yes, in that very room. There is no other where the windows are barred. She must occupy that until we can get this window fixed. Nothing will hurt her. I dare say she is not afraid of ghosts, said Haiti grimly as she passed out. She was absent half an hour or more. Lily lay still with closed eyes all the while, dreading to see again the villainous countenance of old Peter, for hideous as Haiti had appeared to her startled eyes, her aspect was beauty in comparison with that of her husband. It was with feelings of relief, therefore, that Lily welcomed her return. Come, said the old crone shortly. I will conduct you to a more secure apartment, miss. She led Lily along a dark passage, thrust her rudely into a dimly lighted room, and locked the door upon her. That concludes this week's installment of The Bride of the Tomb. Tune in each week for the latest chapters released on Thursdays. This production of The Bride of the Tomb features the voice talents of Laura Bang and Damien Katz. Chris Hallberg voices the intro and outro narratives. The theme music is The Guava Rag by Brett Donnelly. Midi Storytime in the Spare Chains Library produced by Lancelot Darling and Friends. This podcast is brought to you by DimeNovels.org, the Edward T. LeBlanc Memorial Dime Novel Bibliography.